morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington. Today is Tuesday, April the 26th, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. Mali says that it will renew the UN support mission, even though Bamako's military government denies alleged human rights abuses. MINUSMA is supposed to be supporting the transitional government, supporting the state, but also potentially investigating the state. As the world marks World Malaria Day, one million children in Africa have received a four-dose vaccine against the disease. I'm pleased to announce that the ministry has received a positive advisory from the Kenyan National Immunization Technical Advisory Group to expand the use of malaria vaccine within the lake endemic region. And Guinea's ruling junta says that it might break a deadline to return to civilian rule, potentially opening up more sanctions from West African neighbors. We'll have those stories and more coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, Mali's prime minister says that Bamako will renew the UN support mission there even as U.N. efforts to investigate alleged human rights abuses are denied by its military government. Anne Riesenberg has more on this story. The town of Mora was the site of a military operation in which witnesses say the Malian army and foreign soldiers summarily executed hundreds of civilians. Prime Minister Shogel Kokola Maiga says he recognizes the hesitancy that some countries have expressed in continuing to contribute troops to the U.N. mission in Mali. His speech was posted on state TV station ORTM's Facebook page. He says the renewal of MINUSMA's mandate is expected in June 2022, and there should not be a significant change in the mandate, even though some countries that are contributing troops suggest they will reassess their level of participation. Several European military operations have been halted in Mali in recent months, including the Takuba Task Force, the European Union Training Mission, and France's Operation Barkine, following tensions with Mali's government and accusations that Mali's forces are working with Russian mercenaries employed by the Wagner Group. Several European countries contribute troops to MINUSMA. The announcement comes as the UN has been continually denied access to investigate human rights abuse allegations in the village of Mora. In March, there were several reports of Malian and foreign soldiers, presumed to be Russian mercenaries, carrying out summary executions of civilians in Mora, in what Human Rights Watch called the worst single atrocity reported in Mali's decade-long armed conflict. Aliuntin, an independent UN expert on human rights in Mali, released a statement calling for a prompt investigation. Using a messaging app from Senegal, he expressed optimism at MIGA's announcement, but said the tension between France and Russia playing out in Mali is not conducive to resolving Mali's security crisis. If we have, he says, a space of polarization, of tension between the big powers, I don't think this is good for Mali, not for all of the Sahel, not even for all Africans. Andrew Leibovitch is a Sahel analyst at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Speaking from New York via a messaging app, he said that MINUSMA's mission is conflicted. There's a possible contradiction here where MINUSMA is supposed to be supporting the transitional government, supporting the state, but also potentially investigating the state and, uh, and protecting civilians in some cases from the state. And this is something that uh, the mission is going to struggle to deal with frankly, uh, especially if the current pattern of alleged human rights abuses continues. 
MINUSMA ALSO EXPRESSED CONCERN ABOUT RECENT HUMAN RIGHTS ABUSE ALLEGATIONS IN HOMEBERDY, SAYING IN A TWEET THAT IT HAS THE INTENTION OF VISITING THE SCENE SOON. BOTH TEEN AND Leibovich SAY IT'S RARE OR UNHEARD OF FOR THE MALIAN GOVERNMENT TO REFUSE TO GRANT UN INVESTIGATORS ACCESS TO A SITE. ANNIE REISENBERG FOR VOA NEWS, BAMAKO, MALI. Barrier preparations are underway for Kenya's third president, Mwai Kibaki, who passed away last Friday at the age of 90. Kibaki served as Kenya's president between 2002 and 2013, and apart from his economic record where he helped revive the country's stagnant economy, one of his biggest accomplishments was the introduction of free primary education, which made learning accessible to all. Acheno Odiambo reports from Nairobi with details of the barrier plans. President Uru Kenyatta, who delivered the news and held his predecessor as the gentleman of Kenyan politics, decreed a period of national mourning until sunset on the day of burial. President Kenyatta added that the deceased will be accorded a state funeral with full military honors and protocols complete with a 19-gun salute. This because of the distinct service he rendered to Kenyans and according to the dictates of the Kenya Defense Forces. The nation will observe a period of national mourning from today until sunset that President Mwai Kibaki shall be accorded a state funeral with full military honors and protocols being rendered and observed. That the flag of the Republic of Kenya shall be flown at half-mast at State House. All Kenyan diplomatic missions, public buildings, public grounds, all military bases and stations... President Kenyatta will receive the late president's body in parliament building today, where it will lie for public viewing for three days up to Wednesday. Kenyans and leaders who would like to offer condolences to the family in person can do so on Tuesday and Wednesday at the late president's home in Nairobi. Foreign diplomats can also sign the condolence book at the Foreign Affairs Ministry. Dr. Fred Matiangi is the Interior Cabinet Secretary and the Chairperson of the National State Funeral Committee. He spoke on Saturday after a meeting with the funeral steering committee joined the immediate family of the deceased. We have finalized preliminary plans for the state funeral of um, His Excellency President Mike Baki. We would like the public to know that uh, this will take place on Friday the 29th of April 2022 at Nya National Stadium and President Kibaki will then be laid to rest in Odai Nyeri on Saturday 30th. Before then, the President's body will lie in state at the National Assembly for three days between Monday and Wednesday this week for members of the public and the rest of the country's leadership to pay their respects. President Kibaki will be interred in his rural home in Nyeri County, central Kenya, at the same venue where his late wife and former First Lady Lucy Kibaki was buried in May 2016. Kibaki was until his demise the only surviving former president of Kenya, preceded by Daniel Moy and Jomo Kenyatta, who died in 2020 and 1978, respectively. Atieno Odiambo, VOA Daybreak Africa, in Nairobi, Kenya. Rwandan President Paul Kagame traveled to Uganda on Sunday in what was described as a private visit to his counterpart, President Yoweri Museveni. And he said the trip will improve bilateral relations, business and security among the two East African neighbors. Reporter Mugume Davis Gwakarinji has more from Kampala. Rwandan President Paul Kagame visited Uganda after nearly four years and was welcomed by top government officials including Security Minister General Jim Mwezi and General Mwazi Kenerugaba, 
the commander of the land forces of the Uganda People's Defense Forces, who is also President Museveni's son. Professor Lawrence Muganga, the Vice Chancellor of Victoria University in Kampala, said the visit was long overdue. He says the visit will help galvanize cooperation between the two East African countries. It is uh, welcome news to all the citizens, the residents of either countries, both countries, when His Excellency President Kagame crosses over to Uganda and comes to Uganda and he's welcomed by his counterpart, President Museveni, that is a huge sign that uh, indicates to all Rwandans that you're welcome to Uganda. Uh, your head of state has come to Uganda, has opened the way officially for you. Political analyst Mujisha Moses Magufuri agrees. In our African setting, you cannot visit somebody whom you don't agree. So it will give the two, uh, two countries confidence that now we are free uh, to do business. The two countries have been embroiled in iterations after they counter-accused each other of activities aimed at stabilizing each other's security. Rwanda eventually issued an advisory to its citizens not to travel to Uganda. Professor Gerard Karieja, the Dean of School of Management at Uganda Management Institute, says the relations between the two countries is symbiotic. I also agree and believe that uh, it builds more confidence between the two leaders and it also shows that they are committed to good relations as neighbors, but also as uh, leaders in the East African community and uh, also leaders in uh, the Commonwealth and the land and land movement. What we are yet to see is uh, the uh, ordinary Rwandese and ordinary Ugandans uh, building on this. Muganga says the relations between the two neighbors is beyond the two heads of states. There is a history we can't separate. Going beyond even the politics, you're going to find even uh, the socialization, uh, the intermarriages that have for years happened. Uh, there's something that cements the relationship that uh, we can never separate. Rwanda is a major importer of Ugandan products, and Uganda is a major gateway to Rwanda's imports. Borders between the two countries were recently opened after Genom Hosi, President Museveni's son, visited Rwanda. Leaders of the two countries have said they are working on resolving what they say are pending issues. The two leaders are said to have discussed regional security, in particular concerning the new East African member, the Democratic Republic of Congo. For VOA News, I am Mugume, Davis Ruakarinjin Kampala, Uganda. Guinea's ruling junta says it might break a deadline to return to civilian rule, opening up the prospect of more sanctions from West Africa's political and economic bloc. There were no immediate announcement from the military rulers of Burkina Faso who were facing the same Monday deadline to present acceptable plans to hand back power to civilians after their January coup. Leaders of the regional ECOWAS bloc last month told the juntas in Guinea and Burkina Faso that they had until April the 25th to explain how and when they would hand back power to civilians or face immediate sanctions. You're listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. At the start of the COVID-19 global pandemic, the World Bank and other international financial institutions projected a massive drop in remittances flowing to Africa. 
Remittances refer to money sent by migrants to their families in their home countries. And studies show that in 2019, a year before the pandemic, financial payments to Africa were estimated to be over $40 billion, a figure that, according to experts, far exceeds money received in foreign direct investment and development aid. At the height of the pandemic, job losses and high unemployment rates in immigrant populations led to a decline in their ability to send money home. That trend reversed in 2021, and according to the World Bank, remittances to sub-Saharan Africa not only returned to pre-pandemic levels, but they also increased to $45 billion. However, the cost of sending money to Africa is still very high when compared to other regions of the world. And finding a solution to this problem has inspired a number of young African entrepreneurs like Hempstone Maroria and David Wachilla. They're using new innovative financial technologies to create cheaper ways for migrants to send money back home. And joining me at the sidelines of the African FinTech Summit last week, they told me that their startup company, Wirepay, was created after many of their migrant friends and relatives often complained that the traditional channels of sending money back home were inefficient, expensive, and inconvenient. So Wirepay is bringing, you know, um, new opportunities for people living and working outside their home countries to be able to send money back home, um, majorly focused on the U.S. to Africa um, corridors. And beyond that, we are also unlocking financial opportunities by opening bank accounts um, for, you know, African immigrants that live within the USA and soon will be expanding to the U.K., um, Europe and other parts of Africa. Mm. Uh, Wachira, how, uh, you know, the last two years, almost two and a half years, we've been in a global pandemic, uh, lots of uh, unemployment, especially in the migrant community, the people who are sending remittances. How has that reflected in the, in the amount of money that is flowing onto the continent and how is that affecting your business? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, question because remittances are a big source of foreign direct investment uh, for the continent and particularly for Kenya. So you'll find that the expectation was during the pandemic remittances would dip just like everything else was dipping. Uh, but that has not been the case. Uh, largely, we're seeing that remittances, particularly to these developing countries like Kenya, are what we call inelastic in that they don't follow the cycle of the economy. And what typically happens is that put yourself in a shoe of the person who is actually sending the money. Money, what are they sending the money for? Usually they're the support or the bread earner sometimes for these families. So usually when troubles hit, you tend to send more, not send less. And so you're finding that over year on over turnover, 2019 uh, was, uh, we expected 2020 to be much lower compared to 2019. But in fact, the, the opposite was true. 2020 was much higher than 2019, even in the middle of a pandemic. And 2021 was much higher than 2020, despite the pandemic. Because mm, I've, I've thought that because of, you know, closures, a lot of unemployment, people were working less and able to have the disposable income to send back home. Yeah, people were indeed working less, uh, but you'll find that a lot of migrants, particularly from the Kenyan community, sometimes are professionals. So there was this work from home tendency. So you saw a lot of people still working from there. Uh, on top of it, um, a lot of immigrants tend to be in the essential workers category, uh, they either whether they're working for restaurants or, uh, or grocery stores or so forth. So uh, they were still able to work and were uh, still able to get the resources that they typically got. On top of that, there was the 
aid that came in from the uh, both the Trump and the Biden administration, uh, the economic stimulus plan. And that allowed people to have a lot more uh, income that they typically had before, at least based on, on that. And they were able to send a lot of that back mm. home. So you still found you know, remittances going up. And how does Wirepay differentiate itself from other existing players in this space? Um, so um, ideally, Wirepay is building a new age in the digital banking and remittance services. And um, ideally, um, you know, we are looking beyond what, you know, conventional players in the industry are offering. And that's why we have embedded, you know, digital banking services to enable African immigrants not only to just use Wirepay as a means of sending money back home, but with Wirepay, they are able to actually open bank accounts, you know, get debit cards, open savings and checkings bank accounts at least within the USA um, so that over and above, you know, just sending money back home and remitting back money back home, they are able to also um, access other financial services. And this was driven by our research and interactions with our customers because the bulk majority of customers that live and work outside their home countries actually spend the bigger percentage of that money within the countries where they live in. You know, as an example, um, David, um, my co-founder here who works for the World Bank, while he sends a significant amount of money back home, investing back home, the bulk majority of his money is actually spent within the USA. And, um, you know, that's how, you know, Wirepay differentiated itself from the market by being able to create a model that not only gives people an opportunity to send money back home, but actually to be able to receive their salaries within the USA, mm -hmm. to be able to spend money using their debit cards that are issued, um, you know, once you open the Wirepay bank account. And we've packed other embedded financial services. Mm -hmm. um, so so we've been able to create a model that not only, um, you know, works best during remittances, but actually services the needs of immigrants, you know, in the countries where they live and work. That was Hampstone Maroria and David Wachira, They're the founders of Wirepay, a platform to transfer money from all over the world to Africa through mobile money wallets. Studies show that Africa carries an extremely high share of the global burden of malaria. In 2020, the region accounted for 95% of all cases and 96% of death. And now, with the help of vaccines, more than 1 million children have received the four-dose malaria vaccine in Kenya, Ghana, and Malawi, where the pilot trials of the drug are being carried out. Moreno Jambo reports. In 2020, an estimated 627,000 people around the world died of malaria. Most were young children in sub-Saharan Africa below the age of five, accounting for 80% of all malaria deaths in the region. Tedros Ghebreyesus is the Director General for the World Health Organization. Today is an historic day. Today, WHO is recommending the broad use of the world's first malaria vaccine. This is a breakthrough for science, child health, and malaria control. What we have right now is a vaccine that can be deployed, that is accepted, that it's safe, and that can have a massive impact. The WHO is calling for investments and innovation that might bring new vector control approaches, diagnostic, anti-malarial medicines, and other tools to speed the pace of progress against malaria. Mashidi Somoet is the organization's regional director for Africa. For centuries, malaria has stalked sub-Saharan Africa, causing immense personal suffering. The RTSS vaccine is a game changer, and it's arriving at the right time. 
In Africa, Nigeria, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Tanzania, and Mozambique account for over half of malaria deaths worldwide. According to WHO, there was 12% increase in cases in East Africa. At least 3.5 million Kenyans contract the disease each year. Kenya is among three countries in Africa where children have received the four-dose malaria vaccine. Kenya's health ministry says it will expand the use of drugs following positive reviews from a pilot program coordinated by the WHO. Rashid Aman is Kenya's health chief administrative secretary. I'm pleased to announce that the ministry has received a positive advisory from the Kenyan National Immunization Technical Advisory Group to expand the use of malaria vaccine within the lake endemic region. This means that more sub-counties within the lake endemic region will now be able to vaccinate children with the vaccine starting June this year. According to the 2020 World Malaria Report, despite the progress that has been made in the fight against malaria in the East African community, the region is still struggling to fight the disease. Kenya is blaming the upsurge of the disease in the region on failing single-country efforts in the management of the illness. Aman says there are a lot of challenges. The fight against malaria is constantly facing challenges, both existing and emerging, that include increased resistance of the parasite to the commonly used first-line anti-malaria drugs over time, increased resistance of malaria-spreading mosquitoes to insecticides used to control them, importation of new invasive species of malaria-spreading mosquitoes, East African countries are reported to have contributed a significant proportion of the malaria burden worldwide. Uganda's health minister in charge of general duties, Anifa Kawoya, says her country is working towards continuous engagement with the ESC secretariat in the fight against the illness. This will enable us to achieve our vision, malaria-free across borders, our vision eventually to have a zero malaria tolerance in East African region. WHO is looking towards achieving global targets of reducing both malaria cases and mortality rates by at least 90%, eliminating the disease in at least 35 countries and preventing its resurgence in all countries that are malaria-free by 2030. Reporting for VOS Daybreak Africa, I am Moreno Giambo in Sacramento, California. This week, a trial in Germany began for an alleged member of Gambia's infamous Jungler's paramilitary unit during President Yaya Jame's reign. The man standing trial is Bailo. He's accused of being a member of the team that was involved in the murder of Deida Haidara, a journalist with the French press agency AFP. Human Rights Watch called it the first trial to prosecute human rights violations committed in Gambia during the Jame era on the basis of universal jurisdiction. That allows a foreign country to prosecute crimes against humanity, war crimes, and genocide, regardless of where they were committed. AFP reports that Law is accused of driving junglers to kill Hydra in 2004 and a suspected opponent of the president, Dauda Nyasi, in 2006, along with the attempted slaying of lawyer Osman Silla. The head of Reporters Without Borders West Africa office, Sadibu Marong, spoke to Ricky Shryok about the trial. When when Jame lost the power, Bailo went there. He traveled and he started to work there. Actually, he was something like 46. But he has been uh, involved in some, you know, interviews in, in small video in Germany. And, you know, Germany, there are a lot of Gambians. 
diaspora. And when he started sometimes to explain what he has done in the past, some people started to follow him quite. And that's why when Trial International, which is, as, uh, which is one of our partner organizations in this program, they followed him and they put and they, they asked Trial International asked, asked for him to be prosecuted. Can you tell me a little bit about why this uh, trial is happening in Germany specifically? The trial is, uh, is happening in Germany because uh, the law in Germany recognized what they consider as universal jurisdiction. Uh, of a certain crime uh, under international law, like this crime under, um, against this, yeah. And, and Bilo is being, has, has been, was, was being prosecuted under crime against humanity. That was the head of Reporters Without Borders, West Africa office, Sadibu Marong. He was speaking to Ricky Shryok. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vunga.